Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping today on Thursday, July 25th at 10.30 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Paige Winfield Cunningham of The Washington Post. Good morning, Julie. Rebecca Adams of CQ Roll Call. Thanks for having me. And Alice Olstein of Politico. Hello. Later in this episode, we'll have an interview with KHN's Jenny Gold, who wrote the current Bill of the Month story about the very high cost of kidney dialysis and the difficulty of finding care in less populated areas. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. every Sunday. Also, if you have questions you'd like us to answer, we'll have another Ask Us Anything in a couple of weeks. Send your questions to us at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. So this week, we finally got a peek at the drug price proposal we've all been waiting for, the one from the bipartisan leaders of the powerful Senate Finance Committee, Republican Chair Chuck Grassley of Iowa and ranking Democrat Ron Wyden of Oregon. In fact, even as we are sitting here, they are uh, meeting on this proposal and voting on it in committee. Um, Of all the drug price plans we've seen this year, this one seems like it would be the most far-reaching. What are some of the big things in this bill? Rebecca, you're nodding. (laughs) (laughs) So there are three big pieces that we've been paying attention to. There are many pieces in this proposal. Um, And just to set the context a little bit, this will probably be packaged with proposals from other committees, the Senate Health Committee and the Senate Judiciary Committee. We can talk a little bit more about those bills. All of whom have jurisdiction over things to do with drugs and drug prices. Yes, exactly. So um, one thing that Senate Finance Committee Chairman Chuck Grassley and the ranking Democrat Ron Wyden want to do is to hold down the prices in Medicare. And so they do that in a couple of ways. Um, One of them is by putting an inflation cap on both the outpatient drugs that are covered by Part B, and those are cancer drugs, rheumatoid arthritis drugs, basically injectable drugs that drugs you get in delivered doctor's in doctors' office. offices yes. generally. Um, and then they have another inflationary cap for Part D. Now that is more controversial, and there has been a firestorm by the drug industry over that. And by inflation cap, it means they would be limited in how much they could raise their prices, right? They would. Ha- well, they could raise their prices, but they would have to rebate it back to Medicare if they did. And these would be pegged to July twenty. 2019 prices. So they would have a calculation that would determine whether it's raised more than inflation. And so the drug industry has been very upset about the drug, um, the Part D part of it. Um, But it's fascinating because we have seen um, the White House really push very hard on this issue. The president really needs a win on this issue. And so we'll see what happens. Um, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, has not been fond of this proposal. So, again, we'll see. Another part of the bill would totally redesign the Part D benefit. So there's this and convoluted that's the, the structure. the outpatient drug benefit that most Medicare beneficiaries either buy on their own or have packaged into, to some, into their Medicare Advantage plans. Yes, exactly. Um, this was created in 2003, you remember. Um, I when, was there. Yes, yes. <laughs> so we're 
you. Late night, middle of the night vote. Um, and so they have this structure where currently people, seniors in Medicare, they pay 5% of what we call catastrophic costs, costs over a certain level. And they would not have to pay anything above that level um, going forward. And so basically, this would save consumers money, it would save taxpayers money, but it asked more of the health plans and it asked more of the drug companies. Right now, Medicare pays 80% of um, the amount over the catastrophic level that would go to 20%. And then the health plans would have to kick in 60% of those costs and um, the drug companies would have to pay 20% of the cost. The idea behind all this is that You want to give health plans more of an incentive to negotiate, and you want the drug companies to have more skin in the game. So I, I brought along a, uh, a the statement from Pharma, from the, the prescription drug uh, manufacturers lobbying group. And this is basically the uh, the argument that they've been making, of course, for years, is that if you hold down drug prices, we won't be able to develop new drugs. But this is kind of a new way of phrasing it. They say that the Senate finance bill, quote, would siphon more than $150 billion from researching and developing new medicines and give those savings to the government, insurers, and PBMs. <laughs> so it's like... Yeah, well, and I mean, it's not surprising that they're so opposed to this. When you look at the proposals, Rebecca said, um, right now there's this donut hole where they have to kick in more of the cost of the drugs in the donut hole. And I believe this legislation would eliminate the donut hole, which you would think like that pharmaceutical companies would like. But on the flip side, now they're having to pay more for the drugs over the catastrophic phase. And a lot of the patients that are in that phase are the high cost patients who need the really expensive medications. Yeah, we, we should mention the way this was first designed in 2003, and it's because there wasn't enough money to pay for it. So they developed this kind of strange benefit plan where uh, drugs would be covered at the beginning, because most people don't use that many. So most people would then, most patients would then get some kind of a benefit. Then if if you went over a certain threshold, you hit the donut hole. And originally, the patients themselves had to pay for money in the donut hole. Um, they had to go back to paying for all of their drugs. And then if you hit this catastrophic cap, the patients would pay 5%. The problem is now, this was in 2003, or it started in 2006, now the patients who hit the catastrophic cap aren't taking sort of inexpensive, you know, lots of inexpensive drugs where 5% isn't that much money. They're taking drugs that cost thousands of dollars, which is why they've hit that catastrophic threshold. And 5% of that over the the course of a year can be an enormous amount of money. And I think that's where they're trying to restructure the way the benefit works. But obviously, as Paige and Rebecca said... That somebody's going to have to pay for that. Right. And drug makers are arguing. I talked to pharma folks yesterday and they said what they're really concerned about in that phase is this phase. There's there's basically no limit, right? Like what you, once you hit the catastrophic phase, you're in that for the rest of the year. And this is the space then where the drug makers have to foot a lot of that bill for those really, really high cost patients. Um, and then the other argument, I think, besides the R&D argument, as you mentioned, Julie, is they're trying to argue that they, this the drug is not companies. the drug companies are trying to argue that this is not structured in a way that's going to directly help patients at the pharmacy counter as they're buying their medications, that this is, yes, this is going to put caps on the total amount that patients have to pay, but it's not going to actually lower the cost of the medications and therefore the copays that the patients have to pay. So I think that's another argument that you'll you'll hear going forward. Um, and then another thing I was t- just talking to like some pharma lobbyist folks is they're saying, yes, there's this provision in the bill, which so, so basically Grassley and Wyden 
said that this month, July 2019, the price of drugs right now would be the sort of the benchmark, which of course is to prevent drug makers from enacting these huge price hikes going forward. But theoretically, there's nothing to prevent future introductions of future drugs from those drugs being introduced at higher price points than they may otherwise would have been because now pharmaceutical companies are realizing they're going to have to pay for more of that. So I want to talk a little bit about the politics of this because we've, we have this other drug bill in the Senate, remember, that came from the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, the HELP Committee. Um, that's the bill that also has surprise bills in it. But it was it got approved by the committee last month in June, and it was supposed to come to the Senate floor this month. And the, the chairman and ranking member, it's also a bipartisan bill. So um, Lamar Alexander, the, the chairman from uh, Tennessee, and Patty Murray, the ranking member from Washington, announced this week that, yeah, it's not going to make it to the floor before the August recess. And it's not entirely clear why. And there's a lot of controversy over the surprise bill part of it, which we've talked about at some length. But from what I can tell, most of the reason it's not going to come to the floor is because of the drug provisions in it, things to make it easier for generics to to get to market and, and some other not nearly as far reaching stuff as we're talking about at the Finance Committee. But how hard is it going to be to do any of these drug things? I mean, there's this political imperative on the one hand. On the other hand, the drug companies and the other players have been fighting this stuff for 25 years. I feel like on the Dem side, the opposition we would be more political than policy oriented because they want to go a lot further than this. They want right. negotiation. I think even, you know, some of the amendments introduced by Democrats in the hearing this morning, there was an amendment allowing negotiation. So policy-wise, they're fine with this. The question there is whether they want to give Trump a political win. But I think with Republicans, there are real policy concerns because they, as is the case with many healthcare issues, are not at all unified on how energetic they think the federal government should be in urging the private sector to bring down prices. And you see these differences, not just here, but in, well, so you see it in the, in the Grassley-Wyden bill with these um, caps and rebates being controversial already and some of the conservatives already saying that this is the same akin to government price fixing. Which it kind um, of is. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they're not entirely wrong about that. Right. I mean, to different degrees, like the I mean, it's 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 the government. It's still private companies setting prices, but the government saying you can't increase that by a certain amount. So it's a little bit indirect. But, you know, you've seen this dispute also emerge in the surprise billing piece because there's this whole question of how the rate for out of network bills should be negotiated between the hospitals and the insurers. And this whole dispute over whether it should be arbitration or whether it should be should be pegged to the average, some kind of benchmark average prices in Medicare. And some conservatives have said that's also price fixing. If the government is telling insurers and hospitals these prices cannot exceed a certain amount. So it's just Republicans kind of land all over the place on this. But it's really hard to figure out a way you bring down drug prices without at least a larger federal government role in telling industry what it can and can't do. So I think a big question is, what do the polls show? Obviously, so far, the surprise billing and lowering drug prices has polled very well with the public. Two of the biggest health issues out there for the, the 2020 campaign, at least so far. Absolutely. And I think um, Paige is right that I think that Democrats have to decide, do they want an issue to run in? They say that, you know, in 2018, health care was a huge issue for them politically. Do they want to hold on to that? and and Or do they want to give President Trump a win? 
It's, because President Trump really, really, really wants to do something about yes, drug prices. He does because he does. all of the things he's tried to do on his own have flopped so far. <laughs> exactly. I mean, they've the direct to consumer add a requirement to put list prices in blocked by courts. courts. <laughs> yes, and the re- rebate rule that was pulled. So they did also decided not to do something that they wanted to do on um, six classes that that there are more restrictions on how much. Um, how much leverage the insurance companies had. They've, they've Good luck explaining from... that one in a single I sentence. <laughs> I was trying to think, how do we get it to that? It, it has to do with, with the ability of people to get every potential drug versus the ability to negotiate the prices of those drugs. Right. But all of those failures on the executive level have put a lot more pressure on Republicans in Congress to deliver something, um, even if it's modest. And what they're debating now is not modest. It's pretty sweeping. But uh, again, um, the industry has a very strong track record of killing things they don't like, and they are mobilized. They absolutely are. The Chamber of Commerce has come out against it. So I think, you know, one thing in favor of this legislation that we're seeing in the Senate is that it does save a lot of money. The Senate Finance Committee would save $100 billion over 10 years. The Help Committee bill would save a small amount, $7 billion. And that, that's so unusual in health, usually health legislation, things that add. Cost money. Yeah, cost yeah. money. They add benefits or they, you know, mm-hmm. they do other things for consumers. Consumers, but they tend to cost money. These actually save money, even though they are helping consumers. So that's right. Because and, and that's and why they the could state put po- that money towards some other proposal as well. well just, b- before we leave this, and we're going to leave this soon, I just wanted to, to throw in one thing. This is from the opening statement of uh, Ron Wyden at the the markup this morning at the Finance Committee. Um, and remember, this is his bill that he's talking about. He says the Democrats will not vote to begin floor debate on this proposal, talking about the, the Senate Finance Committee drug bill, until it's clear that amendments on two issues, pre-existing conditions and negotiating power in Medicare, he's talking about negotiating drug prices, will get votes on the Senate floor. Um, so basically, he's saying he's going to hold his own bill <laughs> hostage. <laughs> I think, Rebecca, this goes back to what you said. Do Democrats want to actually get something passed or do they want to maintain this as an issue for 2020? And this would suggest yes. they haven't decided yet. Yes. And there is a ticking clock. There's mm-hmm. a limited amount of time to get this done. Sorry, well, it. I mean, it could be one of two things. Mm-hmm. One, either they think passing this bill would be better for Republicans than it would be for Democrats, even though it's bipartisan and they can all run on it, theoretically. Or Wyden thinks that this is going to pass and it's one of the few things that is going to pass and so they better latch all their other top priorities onto it because it's the only train leaving the station. There will be plenty for us to talk about going forward. Um, Okay, in things in Congress that did actually happen this week, the Senate cleared for the president's signature a bill that would extend the fund that covers the health costs of first responders who got sick from what they inhaled working at Ground Zero on an after 9-11. This has been a years-long fight whose public face has been comedian John Stewart. But I wanted to talk about it because it's so illustrative of how hard it is to get anything through Congress, even a bill that passed 97 to 2 in the Senate and 402 to 12 in the House and had a really famous person pushing it who doesn't have another job at the moment. So he literally hung around the halls of Congress for a couple of weeks. Um, is this what it really takes to get bipartisan legislation passed? 
Apparently. <laughs> I mean, this is an issue that kind of flew under the radar, though. I mean, I hadn't really written about it or, or, or followed it that much. So maybe it just, I mean, a lot of times for legislation to get passed, you need to have you need to have a, a big interest behind it, right? You need to have like industry or you need to have a big actor, well-funded activist group. So this also could be a reflection of that is, yeah, you had Jon Stewart, but like you need a lot of people yelling really loud about stuff to get Congress to actually move a lot of times. Well, I think he really got this passed in the first place because he had these people on his show. I mean, he had a national TV show. Um, but even so, I mean, here was something that obviously Congress had made this commitment to help pay the health bills of these people who got sick. And then the, basically the fund was running dry because they'd lived longer and, and more of them had gotten sick and they'd been, it'd been more expensive than Congress had anticipated. So the idea of, you know, getting Congress to basically keep the promise it had already made turned out to be really hard. I remember I covered a similar bill like this in the 1990s with people with hemophilia who got HIV before they could screen the blood. And again, Congress promised to pay for them, but it was endless and took years to to get this kind of thing through. And it was one of those things that probably was going to pass at some point, but they needed somebody to really prod them to act quickly, you know. And John Stewart made the point, you know, when your house is on fire, the firefighter doesn't say, oh, I'll get to it, you know. <laughs> Let's do it right away. It's amazing how many people are affected, too. Like, yes. um, I, think, I think there have been predictions that we're going to reach a point where the number of people that died from the after effects yeah. actually exceeds the number of people that died in the actual wow. attacks. Yeah, yeah. So. It, was, it was really toxic. And, and it's also important to remember that the government has a responsibility here, not just because of the events, but, you know, I was covering energy and the environment at the time during the Bush administration. And I remember when EPA Administrator Christine Todd Whitman went out and told everybody the air is fine, the water quality mm. is fine. There were these debates about what kind of masks to provide, but the masks were wholly inadequate to the task. And so more people got sick because of what the government was saying to these people. There's every expectation that the president is going to sign this bill, but it is, it is I think, a cautionary tale for people think, who think, oh, yeah, if it's bipartisan, it's going to go sailing through. It's hard to get bills through Congress. Um, so there has been a lot of court action on health over the past week. I kind of want to do a lightning round here because we don't have time to get into too much detail, but they're all worth <laughs> mentioning. So first up, a federal district court in Washington, D.C. has ruled that President Trump does so have the authority <laughs> to allow so-called short-term health plans to last for 364 days. Uh, the suit was brought by a group representing nonprofit plans that offer care that is compliant with all the benefits of the Affordable Care Act. Um, why did they argue that the short-term plans were going to hurt their business? And why did the judge disagree? Um, well, on the first point, plans and lawmakers and lots of people are concerned that this will create sort of a shadow market outside of the Affordable Care Act market. And basically all of the younger, healthier people who think they don't need comprehensive coverage and think that nothing bad will really ever happen to them are going to go for these extremely cheap short-term plans that don't cover very much at all. They may find that when they need that coverage, it's not there. Um, We're already seeing stories about people who right. bought these short-term plans and discovered they don't cover very And there have been lawsuits in the past, back when they were truly short-term and not a year long, that there were lawsuits about them being marketed to consumers in fraudulent ways. So 
it, it's this ongoing issue. And, and so the nonprofit plans were saying, you know, look, this is going to hurt our market because it's going to take all of these consumers that help balance out our risk pool and put them in this sort of shadow market outside. But I think what the, the plans are running up against is like is, is a lot of realities here, which is like the ACA didn't actually change the rules here. Mm-hmm. It was the Obama administration. I mean, so they're trying to make the argument that like this doesn't fit into the overall scheme of the ACA. And yet Congress decided to Still, I mean, so previously these short-term plans were allowed for for like two decades uh, to last for 12 months, mm-hmm. and lawmakers didn't change that in the ACA. And it was only a few years later that the Obama administration laid out new rules limiting them to three months. So I think among the judges' findings was that there's been this pretty clear understanding that Congress has given the administration the authority to lay out the rules and dictate how long the short-term plans can last. So I guess to me the ruling wasn't, wasn't like terribly surprising. It's definitely become like a political thing because Democrats have seized on it because this is something Trump has talked a lot about. And Trump likes to, of course, claim that all of his executive actions are going to have these huge sweeping effects and suddenly transform health insurance for everybody, which is highly deba- highly <laughs> debatable. But I mean, I don't also know that there's a lot of evidence, at least yet, that all of these dire predictions about the short term plans are really coming true. I mean, we don't I know. I think the judge pointed that out, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, initial filings, <clears throat> rates are looking decent in the marketplaces. Of course, that could change because they won't be finalized till later this fall. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the way Democrats have talked about it, they make it sound like all of these people all of a sudden are going to leave the marketplaces and go to these short-term plans. And if you look at the incentive structure, it's not quite there because you can't even get the subsidies in the short-term plan. So anybody mm-hmm. who's eligible for subsidies is probably going to stay in the marketplaces. So I don't know. It's a good example of what I see as sort of like a, a bit of a minor thing on the side. Like some people are going to buy these plans, but not very many. But it's been sort of inflated politically. Yes, I think you're and, absolutely right. And also now that there's no mandate, you know, maybe some of the people who would have thought about a short-term plan are now not going to have any plan at all. So um, there's even more sort of factors at play. All right. Got to move on. Um, There's a case we haven't talked about, but we'll be getting more attention soon. In Oklahoma, the state is suing drug company Johnson & Johnson, charging that its business practices helped fuel the opioid epidemic and asking for $17.5 billion, that's billion with a B, to help fund treatment and other state services to ameliorate the problem. It is the first trial of suits filed by just about every single state and hundreds of counties and cities attempting to recoup public costs of the opioid epidemic. Um, how big could this ultimately get? Um, I guess we're going to see a decision sometime in August. Paige, yeah. you've been sort of looking at this. Well, this case is interesting because it might be a bit of a bellwether for kind of how the rest of these lawsuits go. Um, so Oklahoma initially was trying to or bringing the, the suit against three companies and then ended up settling with two over the spring and then and is now trying to uh, extract $17.5 billion over 30 years from Johnson & Johnson. Um, and so where that ruling goes um, in August might tell us a little bit about how the judge might think about a much larger lawsuit that's going to be heard in October. And that one's in Ohio. And that is sort of like this big consolidated suit where all these lawsuits have been rolled together by more than 1,900 cities, counties, Native American tribes, and some other groups. Um, And so that's going to be the big, big one to watch for sure. And that one has been um, – a lot of people have said that that's similar to the tobacco lawsuit that we saw in the 1990s. In the 90s, yes, which which ended up 
producing a lot of money for the states and giving getting a lot of money from the the tobacco companies. So right. they they uh, the state attorneys general have uh, have done this before and it looks like they're trying to do it again. Okay, meanwhile in Arkansas, another federal judge blocked three new abortion restrictions literally at the 11th hour, minutes before they would have otherwise have become effective at midnight. The requirements are familiar ones, banning abortions at 18 weeks, banning abortions due to fetal abnormality in this case Down syndrome and requiring doctors who perform abortions to be board certified in obstetrics and gynecology. As in other states, had the law taken effect, the state's only abortion clinic would have been forced to close. These laws are all just a race to the Supreme Court, right, Alice? Essentially. I I think it's interesting, um, especially on the Down syndrome piece of it, because that was very similar to a law the Supreme Court has already rejected here in Indiana from Indiana. And so um, was I mean, that one on the sex elective or it was both. sex race or or um, fetal like disability, fetal disability. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting that so far it seems that courts see abortion bans based on the reason for having the abortion as, as a bridge too far and a violation of privacy and, and even, you know, requiring doctors to grill the patients about their reasons could be a speech issue as well. So there, yeah, there's a lot going on there. Um, but that is a angle that a lot of states are taking. Other states have passed, um, yeah, uh, bans based on disability or, or reason, and um, that would directly challenge Roe. And so it's sort of seen as a potential path, but we're seeing in the court record so far, maybe not. All right. One more. Finally, a federal district court judge here in Washington heard arguments over a New Hampshire law imposing work requirements for Medicaid enrollees. This is the same judge who struck down similar requirements for Kentucky and Arkansas. Any reason to believe he won't strike these down, too? Alice, this is another one you've been looking at. Yes. Um, right. Because the judge struck down the, the very similar laws, and actually um, New Hampshire's is even more strict, um, even though they have delayed the enforcement. Um, and and there was some speculation that because the state is delaying enforcement and not kicking people off their insurance yet, that that would affect the case. But the plaintiffs say, no, it doesn't affect the case at all, because what we're challenging is HHS signing off on this work requirement. So, you know, when they enforce it is not really the issue here. But what's interesting is that the state went very far out of its way to try to make sure everyone was very well educated about it. They saw what happened in Arkansas, where thousands of people just had no idea this was in effect. And surprised they lost their insurance, not because they weren't working, but because they didn't know about it or couldn't navigate the challenging reporting requirements on this website that was often not <laughs> functioning. And anyways, um, so New Hampshire did ads. They went door to door, knocking on doors. They did tens of thousands of phone calls. And still, almost 17,000 people were set to lose their insurance um, because they hadn't complied. So it's sort of a test case for is there any amount of outreach that makes this policy workable? Yeah, one state that's I just looked at a little bit is Indiana because mm-hmm. they're also their work requirements went into effect in, in January, and they probably have like the least strict work requirements. Yeah, they, it doesn't this, take away your insurance entirely. Yeah, if it you doesn't, don't. Mm-hmm. and it's all based on like the honor system. Basically, like you can testify that you completed them, and they're not really going to like audit you or check up on you that much. Um, and they also have like done a lot of outreach, so that's kind of an interesting mm-hmm. that sort of question of like. Like, is there a way that a state could implement work requirements that wouldn't cause a lot of people to fall off the program? And interestingly, nobody's actually challenged Indiana's work requirements yet, whereas they've been challenged in the other mm-hmm. states. Although I think there is some speculation that they will be challenged. <laughs> but 
It's interesting because the whole point of this is, what is the mission of Medicaid? Mm -hmm. And all of these lawsuits go to that particular point. And people say that, you know, if people lose their coverage, then, you know, that having work requirements does not further the mission of Medicaid. Okay, that is the news for this week. And that was a lot of news. Thank you, ladies. Now we will play our Bill of the Month interview with Jenny Gold, and then we'll be back with our extra credits. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast from her home base in San Francisco, my KHN colleague, Jenny Gold, who wrote the current Bill of the Month. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Julie. So this month's patient was suddenly diagnosed with advanced kidney disease requiring dialysis. Tell us who he is and how he suddenly found himself needing one of the more expensive medical treatments for a chronic ailment. So in this story, we meet Sovereign Valentine, who goes by Sov. He is 50 years old and lives in rural Plains, Montana. Um, And he is a personal trainer and has always kept himself in really great shape, really been focused on his diet and exercise. But in the last couple months, he started feeling pretty run down. At first, he thought maybe it was just he was getting older and he couldn't handle his workouts anymore. But eventually, it started getting worse and worse. He started vomiting, and it got so bad. He was so tired and so sick that he ended up going to the emergency room where he was very quickly diagnosed with polycystic kidney disease. His kidneys were in total failure. So before we talk more about this particular case, tell us why kidney dialysis is so very expensive. Well, so that's an interesting question because Medicare doesn't pay all that much for dialysis, and and Medicare is the primary payer for um, dialysis sessions. They pay $235 a session, which the dialysis companies say they don't make any profit on. That's not a lot of money. But where their profits do come from is from the commercial insurance market. Commercial insurers pay three to four times what Medicare pays for dialysis, and that comes to quite a bit. And uh, turns out that dialysis clinics actually have a fairly healthy profit. The reason they're able to demand so much money from private insurers is because it's basically a duopoly. There are two huge companies that make up about 70% of the market in the U.S. Fresenius, which is where Sovereign Valentine ended up getting his care, and DeVita. And because they dominate the market so much, they really can demand the prices that they want from health insurers. And you mentioned what Medicare pays. Why does Medicare uh, pay so much for, uh, for kidney care? Well, there's a 1973 law that gives patients the right to Medicare who are in kidney failure and need dialysis. That means even if you're not 65 yet, but you need uh, dialysis services, Medicare uh, will kick in for that. Now, the one caveat is that it doesn't start until a 90-day waiting period is up. So during that 90 days, patients can be quite vulnerable to very high prices for commercial dialysis, and that's what happened to Saw Valentine. Okay, so now he's diagnosed with kidney failure, and luckily for him, he has insurance, and his wife is a doctor. So what happened next? He did get the care he needed, right? Absolutely. When you need dialysis, it's not optional. He needed it immediately to survive, and he got it. He started getting uh, dialysis sessions three times a week, and he went to a clinic about 70 miles from his home run by one of these massive companies called Fresenius, and he got his care three times a week for about 14 weeks there, Um, and then, as we say, the bills came. Exactly. And how much was the bill, and how much was he expected to pay? 
So the bill ended up being $540,841.90. So over half a million dollars. Their insurer paid uh, $16,241, but that left the Valentines with an unpaid balance of $524,600.17. So again, more than half a million dollars, more than twice the cost of their home or the value of their home in Montana, and more than twice uh, what his wife Jessica's medical school (laughs) debt is. Wow. So they tried to find an in-network provider, right? But they couldn't, uh, yet it turned out there was one. What happened with that? So as Sovs, you know, was battling for his life and um, dealing with this intense diagnosis, his wife, Jessica, was trying to deal with their insurance company. She was a really savvy customer, so she knew what she was doing. About a week after they started dialysis, they were told by a case manager at their insurer that the clinic that they'd been initially referred to by the hospital was out of network. That was this Fresenius clinic. But when she asked for an in-network option, she says the case manager told her there was no in-network option in the entire state of Montana. Her husband desperately needed this care. They really didn't have an option but to keep going. Now, the insurer claims they told her that there was another in-network option, but she says, you know, that that's not what she found out. So, Weeks went by. Eventually, she wrote to the insurance commissioner in the state of Montana, who eventually told her there actually were these other options. But that wasn't for months. And during that time, they racked up this massive bill. Eventually, they were able to transfer to a DCI clinic, a nonprofit clinic, uh, in the town next door that was about equidistant from their house. So they were eventually able to get this in-network care. But for the first 14 weeks, they they didn't know about it. And so they were getting care, really needed care, at this out-of-network clinic. So what happened in the end? Are they going to have to pay this bill? Won't Sovereign qualify for Medicare at some point? Well, Sovereign almost certainly will qualify for Medicare, but again, there's that 90-day waiting period where he's still vulnerable to these bills. Fresenius has offered them a 50% discount. That still leaves them with a quarter of a million dollar bill that they really can't pay. They may be able to get as much as a 70% discount, still $160,000 more than they and most people can pay. Um, So unfortunately, they are not really sure what they're going to do. They may hire a lawyer and ultimately they're considering filing for bankruptcy if they can't get this bill reduced to something more reasonable that they can actually pay. Wow. So what's the take home from this if you suddenly find that you really need expensive care right away? Well, if you need care, you need care. Don't skimp on it. If you need something like dialysis, it's really not optional. Um, Push your insurance company as hard as possible to find an in-network option. That's really where you want to be. If there really is no in-network option, you can write to your insurance commissioner and say, hey, why isn't there an option for me and my insurance companies? They are actually required to have an adequate network of providers. You can also contact your employer's HR department if you have insurance provided by your job. They might be able to go to bat for you. You can contact your insurance company and see if they're willing to negotiate the bill on your behalf with the out-of-network provider. Check also if there's maybe a surprise billing law in your state that could help you. And when all else fails, Negotiate directly with the provider. They may have a financial aid package of some kind, like Fresenius does, even if it's not 
the most generous, and they may just be willing to negotiate some lower price for you. I mean, they want to get some amount of money from you, um, and there may be some kind of amount that you can agree upon. The take-home message really here is don't just cut a check. Make sure you've exhausted all your options before you try to pay a bill like this. All right, a cautionary tale. Jenny Gold, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. We are back, and it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read, too. Don't worry. If you miss it, we will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash health. Paige, why don't you start this week? Yeah, well, mine is a New York Times story from our, our uh, colleague Sarah Cliff and Margot Sanger-Katz, and it was a, one of those stories I, th- I mentioned earlier that I wish I'd written it because it was really, really interesting. But it's about an element of surprise medical bills that hasn't gotten as much attention. You know, everybody's been talking about how when you go to an emergency room or you go to a hospital out of network and you're hit with these surprise medical bills, and that's something that the Alexandra Murray legislation is really trying to tackle. But something that that the legislation mostly leaves out is ambulance rides and um, ground ambulance rides. They do air ambulance. ambulances, right? And one thing that I, I didn't realize that Sarah and Margot noted is that there even an even higher percentage of ambulance rides are out of network of people's plan versus emergency room visits. Um, and when you think about it, like that makes a lot of sense because by the very nature of like riding in an ambulance, you basically have no say, uh, you know, who's going to pick you up or what your location is, etc. Um, and so um, they actually asked Senator Alexander why he didn't include this in the legislation because it's such a big problem. And I guess, you know, he he talked about how kind of this is a, a lot of air ambulances or sorry, ground ambulances are funded by state and local governments. And so they kind of play a role here. So it gets a little bit complicated. Um, But it was a really, really interesting story. And I think, um, you know, I'm just remembering uh, our au pair had an ambulance called on her a couple weeks ago. And my first thought was, oh, no, did she take a ride in the ambulance? (laughs) Fortunately, she didn't. And it was just a minor thing. But, you know, the neighbor thought an ambulance needed to be called. And I'm like, lady, you're not thinking about what this could cost. So it was a really good story. (laughs) Rebecca. So mine is um, one that ProPublica put out. It's health insurers make it easy for scammers to steal millions. Who pays? You. So um, this was by Marshall Allen. It's a really long, wonderful story, quite a saga about um, this guy who really ripped off insurance companies. He was it, a physical. He was a personal trainer. He was a right? personal trainer. <laughs> who got a Medicare number. He did. I mean, he he found it so easy to get this Medicare number, and he got not just one, but many. And then he was discovered because his ex-wife saw some messages, some iPad messages, I believe. And she realized, oh, my goodness, he is billing insurance companies for this. And it's ridiculous. The nation's top insurance companies, United, Aetna, and Cigna, and he billed them for $25 million, and he got about $4 million in cash out of it. So, My favorite part, though, is that the wife, the ex-wife, turned him in, and it yes. still took both the yes. government and the insurance industries like three, three years. years. <laughs> three years. He was doing it for a total of four years. It's crazy. A cautionary tale it about is a cautionary syncing tale. your iPad with your <laughs> ex-wife. That's right. Well, I think it was the kid. The kid. I think it was okay, yes, the kid's the kid. iPad. Yes. Alice. 
I have another story from our uh, pod mate, uh, Sarah Cliff and Scott Shane at the New York Times. Uh, Neil Armstrong's death and a stormy secret six million settlement. This was very well timed with the anniversary of the moon landing that everyone was feeling very nostalgic about and thinking about Neil Armstrong. And at the New York Times, they received in the mail a bunch of secret documents around the death of Neil Armstrong and the family threatening the hospital um, and accusing them of um, medical missteps and negligence and and um, saying, you know, he, he might not have died if, if they hadn't made these decisions. And the hospital agreed to settle in secret for $6 million. And the story really makes it clear and the experts they talked to in the documents that this would never have happened if it had been you or I <laughs> and not a beloved, famous person at issue. The settlement wouldn't have happened. Exactly. Not that, I mean, there were there were clearly some medical mistakes. Sure, but. sure. But it's just, it's very hard to prove. Um, it was sort of a very borderline case. They made some calls in the moment to treat him in certain ways that ended up potentially contributing to his death. But that's so hard to prove. And had the family not sort of been threatening to go to the press with this or put it in a book, um, the hospital likely would not have coughed up this much money. A lot of wild stories this week, I will say. All right. Mine is a little bit less wild. It is from the Los Angeles Times. It's called Rising Health Insurance Deductibles Fuel Middle Class Anger and Resentment by Noam Levy. It paints a pretty vivid picture of exactly how health is playing out as a political issue with squeezed middle class that has health insurance but can't afford to use it, getting increasingly frustrated that wealthier people have more generous benefits and, you know, most mostly... And poorer people have Medicaid, and they are resentful of people whose bills are getting paid because who have more money than them and less money than them. This is not how the Affordable Care Act was supposed to play out, but it is where we are. Um, so that is our show for this week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us, too. Also, as usual, you can email us your comments or questions. Please send us more questions for our Ask Us Anything next month. We are at what the health all one word at kff.org or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Alice Olstein. At Rebecca Adams DC. At PW underscore We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. <laughs> <laughs>